Well, it's good to be here uh, with you, Alliance family. Uh, I've been with the Alliance family for a lot of years and uh, love uh, our district here. My dad has been involved and engaged for many years. And uh, chatting with my dad, he passed away in 2018, but for 20 years he worked in the district. And he always loved uh, what Scott was doing and the way that he engaged with him. And I remember hearing Scott's name before I'd even met Scott. Uh, about, you know, just the way that he was leading the church down here and how he'd been engaged for so many years and the great things that had been happening here. So I'm thankful to get an opportunity uh, to worship here with you today and to lead you. Now, some of your other pastors as well, I know them more through their parents than I do themselves, okay? So Pastor Aaron uh, here, uh, his dad is my accountant, and that guy has saved me so much money over the years. So I love Aaron uh, because of his dad, Murray. And then, of course, Pastor Brian, love this guy as well, but uh, his mother-in-law, she is a sweet mother-in-law here, and she has prayed for me for so many years, and uh, I am where I am today because of the intercessions of Julene. So it is great to be here with the family. I uh, looking forward uh, to spending some time in the Word with you, but have you ever, I'll just steer your mind towards this for a moment, have you ever done something and then turned around and thought to yourself, what was I thinking? Has that ever happened to you before? Maybe not you. It's happened to me multiple times. But I was thinking about an instance this last week. A few years ago, uh, my, uh, I was down at our in-law's house uh, down in Minnesota and for a couple of weeks, and my father-in-law was going to put in a cement floor in his pole barn. And uh, I thought, you know what, I could go help him out. I don't have many skills, but I could, you know, go offer to do a thing or two here. And uh, he said, well, Jeff, why don't you go and get some sand uh, to put on the base here, which probably was a good thing for him to do for me, get, get me out of the way and send me out. And I thought this was awesome. This would be pretty easy here. So he told me to go get the truck and the trailer and uh, get in there and then drive down to the uh, cement place. It was just a couple miles from his house. And, but he told me, Jeff, make sure once they put the sand in the trailer, you don't go over 35 miles an hour. He was very clear about this. And I shrugged and said, that's ah, not a problem, no worries. So I went and uh, got the truck and the trailer and drove off and uh, went down and made it to the uh, cement place there. They loaded this, uh, this front loader up and put a bunch of sand in the back of the trailer. Now, I, I was a little bit worried, not too bad, because that trailer all of a sudden got really heavy and the truck, which was a small little Ford Ranger, it was kind of light in that way. But, you know, I, I said, my, my father and all, he knows what he's doing here, so I'll just head back. Not a problem. And so I pulled back out onto the highway, and I started, you know, accelerating. And then I saw in my rearview mirror a vehicle coming up on me. So I thought, oh, okay, I better push, push the uh, accelerator down a little bit there. And uh, all of a sudden, the words of my father-in-law came back to my mind, don't go over 35 miles an hour. Well, I looked down at my speedometer, and I saw that I was at 45 miles an hour. And just as my foot came off the accelerator, I felt the back trailer just sort of fishtail a bit. And it fished one way, and then it fished the other way, and I was in a 360-degree turn on the highway there, going around thinking, oh no, what was I thinking? My father-in-law told me not to go over 35 miles an hour. 
Well, thanks be to God, there weren't other vehicles uh, coming the other way, but I did a full 360, hit the ditch, and the trailer broke off the hitch and flipped over, but my truck stayed uh, level. And I got out of myself, got out of the truck, shut the door, and said, Jeff, man, what were you thinking? First guy, the guy that was behind me, coming up on me there, was on the scene, and uh, he just looked at me, you know, didn't say a word, just passed me the cell phone, and I uh, phoned up my father-in-law. But I could tell, I could read his expression. His expression was, what were you thinking? And my father-in-law, he's too polite to say it, but when he came the way there, pulled into the ditch right beside me there, he didn't say anything, but I could tell by the look on his face as well. What were you thinking? You know, you weren't listening to me at all. Now, in fact, when we look at our passage today here, we may wonder the same thing. What are you thinking? We may ask that question here. So if you want to take your Bibles and turn open with me to Acts chapter 17. Uh, We meet up with Paul here today, and the big question that we're going to ask today is, what was he thinking? Now, I'll set the stage for this passage here, where we're at in the book of Acts, which is a very missionary book here. And uh, they're in the midst, Paul is, of his second missionary journey, going around sharing about the love and the person of Jesus Christ and what he did for people on the cross. And Paul, Silas, and Timothy are moving together here. They've just spent quite a bit of time in Philippi. In fact, uh, there was probably about 100 miles between the two cities, so they were no doubt walking along between the two cities, sharing, debriefing, saying, okay, how are we going to do this? How are we going to share the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, they spent all this time in Philippi, and really they described their time there as suffering and being insulted. And so I would think, you know what, maybe they would take a little bit of a different tact than what they did in Philippi. You know, maybe they would have wanted to avoid these things. They wouldn't want to be uh, suffering and be insulted. And so maybe they would think of this time in Thessalonica as a little R&R, a little rest and relaxation. So let's see what happens here in Acts chapter 17, verse 1. It says, Paul and Silas then traveled through the town of Amphipolis and Apollonia and came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service, and for three Sabbaths in a row, he used the scriptures to reason with the people. Now, what was Paul thinking here? Now, this isn't exactly what I would consider rest and relaxation. This is what he did before. He's doing the same thing again, going to the synagogue three weeks in a row and sharing about Jesus Christ. Now, normally, you know, after you go through some suffering, you would probably think I should change some things about what I did. Not Paul. He went right into the Jewish synagogue and started sharing about Jesus. Jesus, reasoning from the scriptures with them. Now, this was his standard apologetic for Jewish people, and this was the precedent set by Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus Christ, uh, he preached the gospel. Now, Paul mentioned this many times uh, throughout his letters, but most probably uh, famously in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which I received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. For what I received, I passed on to you of first importance. And then he sums up the gospel right here, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried 
and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that's what we still preach today. And that's what we celebrated when we came to the communion table, that Jesus Christ came, he died, he was raised again on the third day for our sins so that we could experience life in Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul continued to preach. It says in verse 3, he explained the prophecies and proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. He said, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. He's the one that you've been waiting for. He's the one that the whole Old Testament has promised. He's the one that has come to fulfill the good news. And Paul was excited to talk about this. Now, he told the entire story of Jesus here, and he challenged the Jewish people there. Now, you can imagine that Paul is not following the Dale Carnegie's rules for winning friends and influencing people here because he's calling all those in attendance at the synagogue to recognize that as Jewish people, when the Messiah came, what did they do? They put him on the cross. They killed him. And this is, you know, not the most winsome way to convince people. But he's using the scriptures to say that the Messiah was called to come to suffer and to die and to rise from the dead. He was compelled to share the story of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul was called to do. That's what Paul was convinced of. Now, we must ask ourselves, are we convinced of the same thing? Are we convinced that Jesus Christ came just as the Scriptures said he was? And that Jesus Christ went to the cross and he died just as the Scriptures said he would? And that Jesus Christ came back from the dead just as he said he was going to do, so that we could experience freedom in this life and in the life to come. And if we are convinced of this very same thing, then like Paul, we should be compelled to share the story of Jesus Christ. And that's what we see here. It says in verse 4, some of the Jews who listened were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with many God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent women. That's the word. We put a smile on our face. This seems pretty good. You know, people are persuaded to follow after Jesus Christ after Paul preaches. That's a little celebration for what's going on. But then there's an interesting word in verse 5. It's the word but. I always hate it when this word comes after a great celebration like this. It says, some of the Jews were jealous, so they gathered some of the troublemakers from the marketplace to form a mob and start a riot. They attacked the home of Jason, searching for Paul and Silas so they could drag them out in front of the crowd. <laughs> so, I mean, all of a sudden, things turn bad. Jealousy goes on here. John Stott says in his commentary, it's hard to exaggerate the danger to which this exposed them. For the very suggestion of treason against the emperors often proved fatal to the accused. And so if you were to read on there just in this little section, that was the accusation. And so what Paul, Silas, Timothy faced there was that they were going to be killed. Now, thankfully, I'm not sure Jason would put it this way, but Jason was in the way. They got in uh, this here. They did some negotiation. They found little evidence for the charges of sedition here, and everybody got let off. But they said, Paul, you got to get out of here, man. you got to leave. 
And so Paul leaves, he heads off on the road, and in the immortal words of Willie Nelson, they were on the road again. Now, they go from Thessalonica, and they're on their way to Berea. Now, it seems that they were, as we've seen here, running into a few problems when they go into synagogue. So, what do you think they're going to do when they go to Berea? If it were you and me, we'd say, maybe we should try, once again, a little bit of a different tact here. But let's see what they do. So in verse 10, it says, That very night the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. When they arrived there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. <laughs> Same thing again. And what was Paul thinking here? It says, And the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. Well, this seems pretty good, doesn't it? Walks into Berea. He goes to the synagogue. He starts to preach the message. And what do the people of Berea do? It says they were more noble. All right? That's an interesting word there. More noble than those of Thessalonica. All right? What do noble people do? They seek. They open the scriptures. They test to see if what it said is true. Now, if you, if you want to be a noble person, I mean, you should get to know the word of God. You should open it up. And when, whether it's me or Scott or somebody else or somebody on TV is preaching the word of God, you should open up the scriptures and test and see if what they said is true. If you want to be a noble, if you want to be a follower of God. That's an important thing to do. Get to know God and his word because this is the only infallible way that we can understand what God has to say to us. I'm a fallible human being. I want to preach God's word. I want to preach the Bible. But sometimes I think things that I say, you've got to check and see if what they say are true through this. That's what a noble person does. And I was thinking about this this last week. You know, Proverbs 31 talks about a wife of noble character who can find. If you want to be a noble woman of God, you know how you do that? Get to know God and his word. Well, that's not only for women, but it's for men as well. But we need to. If we want to be noble people, we get to know his word. Now, the other thing that I want you to know here is that they searched the scriptures day after day to see if what Paul said was true. Sometimes it seems like, as Christ followers, we are scared of questions. Okay? I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Maybe as a young person, maybe you're experiencing it right now. You have questions about Jesus Christ. You have questions about Christianity. You have questions about the church. We shouldn't be scared of questions. We shouldn't be scared to ask them. We shouldn't be scared to answer them. If Jesus Christ is who he says he is, and who does he say? He says he's the way, the truth, and the life, right? If Jesus is the truth, and, and this is the truth, what we believe, then we shouldn't be scared of questions, no matter how difficult they are. And there are difficult questions. All right? I, make no mistake about that. And, you know, we have a, a university campus right here. And, uh, you know, Christianity at the university campus and all across North America isn't held up in any way. But I think that the criticism should be brought on and we should be ready to answer the questions. In fact, as we relate Christianity to any other worldview, 
it answers these tough questions better than any other worldview. If you want to uphold an atheistic worldview, you just ask somebody who's an atheist a question, well, what about all the suffering in the world? Why is it like that? And you listen to their answer. You see if you find it satisfactory. Okay? I don't like the answer to why is there suffering in the world that scriptures give me. Okay? Because of sin and brokenness in this world. Things come, things befall me. Some things I bring on myself, but some things others bring on me. Some things are just natural. But it makes the most sense. If an atheist or a Hindu or an is, somebody who follows Muslim teachings answers this view, I, it's not as satisfactory. It doesn't make sense to me. And any question that you want to ask, you know, you may not like the answer at some point, but it makes sense. It makes sense of our experience. It makes sense of what people walk through in the scriptures here. So we shouldn't be scared about the questions. We should be free to ask and to answer. And parents, if your kids are asking questions about the scriptures, okay, make sure we don't say something like this. Oh, oh don't ask those questions. Okay? Just believe. All right? Make sure we don't answer like that. Because what we want to do is we want to say, either we want to say, uh, I don't know. Okay, if you don't know the answer to the question, that's fine. Fine to say, I don't know. Lots of times people ask me, I don't know the answer. But then we need to go and seek out the answers. And we have lots of tools to be able to help. You have great pastors here that can help you answer the questions. All right? The internet. We need to be a little careful with the internet. All right? But at the same time, there's good stuff. Reputable places. And let's help our kids find the answers to these questions that they ask. So, sorry, that was just a little bit there for you. And the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. They listened eagerly to Paul's message, and they searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. Day after day, they searched the scriptures. They got to know God and his word. Now, things seem to be going well. But then we have this word in verse 13. Once again, but. All right? Things were going well, but. When some of the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, they went there and stirred up trouble again. The believers acted at once, sending Paul to the coast while Silas and Timothy remained behind. What was Paul thinking here when he went here? He was compelled to share the story of Jesus Christ with all those that he met. Didn't matter. Now, it didn't matter that things went badly in the end in Thessalonica. He was compelled to share Jesus. And then he went to Berea and he did the same thing. Why? Because no matter who he met, he wanted to share the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. And we need to ask ourselves the very same thing. Would we be willing to do this if we knew that Jesus Christ was who he said he was? If we truly believe this? I have no doubt that Paul's friends were telling him, Paul, maybe you should just back off. Maybe you should slow down a little bit. The believers here, sending Paul to the coastline there, and they say, okay, you're going to take a boat. We're going to send you. It's going to send you to Athens. Paul, maybe just take it easy a little bit here. But Paul was compelled because of how Jesus Christ had changed him to share with all those that he met. So I can imagine now Paul. They put him on this boat head down to Athens, about 300 miles by boat from where he is. And these things are going through his head. You know, what is Paul thinking? 
I can tell you what he's thinking, the sorts of things that are going through his mind. He's grateful for what Jesus Christ has done for him. On the road to Damascus, he was met by Jesus Christ himself, and his life was radically changed. I have no doubt this is going on through his head. Acts chapter 9, if you want to read about it. I have no doubt that in his mind he's going over the scriptures, the truth of Jesus Christ, and how he's the fulfillment of the, pro- the, the hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament so that he could prove that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. And I have no doubt that he's thinking about the faces of the people that are walking through the cities that he's been part of in the past, Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica, the faces of his friends, his loved ones. And he's thinking about the people who need to know Jesus. And so when Paul arrives in Athens, we ask this question, what was he thinking? He comes into the city. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. And so what does he do? You guys can guess it by now. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. And he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. What was Paul thinking? Well, Paul walks into this city. And he walks around the city. He's doing, you know, picking up some shopping. You know, going to the dollar store there in Athens or whatever he was doing. And he walks around the city and what does he see? He sees idols. In fact, one of the historians said, it is more likely for you to find an idol in Athens than you would find a man or a woman. There were so many gods in Athens. And what does it say in our passage here? It says, he was deeply troubled by this. He was deeply troubled by what went on there. And he was greatly distressed. He hurt for the people of Athens because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so what did this motivate him to do? It motivated him to go and to start to speak the gospel again in the same way. And he could probably almost have anticipated that the same sort of thing is going to happen. Persecution is coming. But this didn't stop him. Because he's compelled by the love of Jesus Christ. In Galatians 2.20, Paul puts it this way. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. I'm going to do what he tells me to do, because he loved me, and he gave his life for me. And so what's Paul's life all about? Obedience, obeying his Savior, the one who loved him so much, and loving the people around him and telling them about the life-changing experience that he has. So what was Paul thinking? He was compelled to share the story of Jesus Christ with all that he met, no matter what the cost. He counted the cost. And he said, no cost is too great to do what my Savior has done for me. He loved his Savior. He loved these people. And so he made it his life mission to share the love of Jesus Christ with as many people as he should. He was compelled. 
And Paul shouldn't be unique in this. Paul isn't unique as a disciple of Christ. If we say that we are followers of Jesus Christ, we should be compelled by the very same thing. What are we thinking? We should be compelled in this very same way because you have crossed over from death to life, right? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. I love what one apologist said. He put it this way. He said, Jesus Christ did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. We were dead in our sins. And Jesus Christ came. He paid for it all on the cross. And now we have been given new life. Amen? You guys do that here? Yeah, softly. That's okay. Amen. We are alive. We have been freed. We sang a song here about the addicts can come. You know, the brokenhearted can come. The sinner can come. I am this person. I am this broken addict, sinner. I can come to church here and I can kneel at the cross because Jesus Christ has freed me. He's given me life and he's freed me. I have the Holy Spirit living inside me. So I don't have to walk in these I don't have to be addicted I don't have to be in control of sin because Jesus Christ has broken that sin. My life has meaning and purpose. And this is an awesome thing about following after Jesus Christ. He gives me a mission. No matter what I do, whether I'm a janitor, whether I'm an executive, whether I'm a farmer, doesn't matter what you're called to do. He's given you meaning and purpose beyond that. Now those are all important things. But there's meaning and purpose beyond that for eternity. You, as a Christ follower, you have this. And we are given abundant life. Jesus Christ said, I came that they might have life and they might have it to the full. Not only life here on this earth, but life in eternity. These are all the things that you get when you come to Jesus and you receive his free gift of grace. What are you thinking? But well, we must be compelled to share the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us with all those that we meet, no matter what the cost. Well, this is a tough thing to do. But let me tell you, when you live in this way, it is amazing. It's a powerful thing to be a part of, to be a part of something like this in somebody's life. I remember when I lived up in Calgary, we lived on a street and we spent a lot of time, a lot of time lapping my neighborhood, praying for the 75 houses in proximity there, getting to know a lot of my neighbors. And if you were to ask me, you know, what were the, you know, what were the two toughest guys on my block, two most unlikely guys to come to know Jesus, I could have given you, you know, two, three, four, five names, laid them down there. And uh, I remember uh, one time, number two on the list, okay, he was driving by. And uh, uh, he stopped on the side of the road, and I walked out, and I talked to him a little bit uh, there, and he told me about a pain uh, in his life. He was actually uh, just walking through a divorce. And uh, I felt God tapping me on the shoulder, prompting me there to pray for him right there. Now, we hadn't prayed before. not a Christ follower. And I said, I'm not doing that, God. <laughs> and he said, yeah, you are. I said, no, I'm not. And I didn't do it. And so I walked back into the house, and I just felt 
bad about that already. And so actually what I did, I, I knew I disobeyed God, and I knew that he had set up that moment, that point in time, as a, as a moment where I was to pray for my neighbor. And so I went back in the house. I said, oh, man. Next morning, I woke up. I felt convicted about it again. And I said, okay, i got to make this right. So I called up my friend, and I said, we got to sit down. i got to come over to your house because I didn't do something I should have. He's like, okay, come on over. So I came over, and God had given me a few words uh, for him uh, to talk to him about. And uh, I just asked would you mind if I prayed for you in the situation here? He said, no, I, I, I wouldn't mind at all. And uh, so I prayed for him, and I walked out the house, and, uh, you know, I didn't think a whole lot of it. Uh, two months later, uh, it was uh, Christmas time, and uh, I just remember looking in the back, and there's my neighbor sitting in the back of our Christmas Eve service. And it was just the most amazing thing. And I uh, slipped in, slipped out, didn't get a chance to talk to him there. He did talk to uh, one of my friends on the street, who was a Christ follower as well, came to our church. He said, did, did you see? Did you see our neighbor there? I said, yeah, I saw him. I didn't get a chance to talk to him. He said, I got a chance to talk to him. He just came, showed up. It was great to chat with him. And eight months later, I got a chance uh, to baptize uh, my friend. And it was one of the most amazing experiences. Being up on the stage and seeing this guy who'd been in pain, been struggling. And on the outside, it looked like he had it all together. But this crisis in his marriage brought him to the point where he knew he needed more than that. And just to be a part of something like that. I wasn't perfect in this. But just to be able to follow after Jesus Christ and see the change that he made, it was an amazing thing. What are you thinking? Are you compelled to share the story of Jesus Christ with all those that you meet, no matter what the cost? And we need to think about how we can do this. We need to pray and be bold. And sometimes it's going to work out like it did with my neighbor. But i got to tell you, I had lots of neighbors I prayed for that didn't come to know Jesus, okay? That were actually quite adversarial to the things that I had to say about that. But we still pray. We still open our mouths when we're talked to. We need to find a way to serve people and to love people. And every single day, the Holy Spirit will give us opportunities to speak or to show the gospel to our friends, our neighbors, our work associates, fellow students. This is what we're called to do as individuals. Now, I know as a church here, you guys are engaged in this. You got it up on the wall here. You know, this is what we're called to do. While demonstrating his love, we will reach and teach and equip people to know, love, and to serve him. We are called as a body of Christ to do this. And I know you guys, you know, have a heart for the university here. I know you guys have a heart for your workplace. I know a little bit about Brian's job and how you know, he's reaching out in that way. And you guys, you know, together we support in this. And I know how Aaron, you know, meeting with, with the police and, and, and you know, being uh, salt and light in that area here. And I'm sure Dylan, you know, his heart is filled with, you know, how can we reach the, the youth and the young adults? 
I know as a church, you guys are about this. But then as we go out, as we go from here, the church scatters as individuals. What are we thinking as we go out the doors? I want to call the worship team to come up here and just lead us in a final song. But I just want to encourage you guys, commit yourselves to prayer. Have your ears open when God guides and directs. You know, whether it's, you know, stopping on the side of the road to chat with your neighbor and God prompts to pray. You know, hopefully you're more obedient to this than I was. But consider and commit yourselves to serving the people around you. And then commit to speaking or to sharing how Jesus Christ has given you hope in this life and the life to come. What are you thinking? God, I pray that you would equip each and every one of us here to go out and to share the love that you have given to us so deeply. We appreciate and love what you've done for us. Fill us with hearts of gratitude as we go out here, the church scattered, and equip us, Lord, to speak your words that will transform lives. Pray these things, Lord, in your precious name. Amen. You stand with us this morning as we close our service. We'll sing a song we sang earlier entitled Glorious Day.